here. This is a new section. Jesus is the one who comes after. Of chapter 3, 21 through 4, 13. So now we've been introduced to John, who prepares the way. And now Jesus comes after him and is going to continue this ministry of John and bring in a new era, a new age. This section, which is Jesus' baptism, genealogy, and temptation. And these are all going to be linked together with this emphasis, the Son of God. It's going to talk about the Son of God, the Son of God, the Son of God. And the emphasis on this phrase, Son of God, links these three events together. One can say this is the initiation of Jesus. And don't think of like fraternity sorority initiation, but the like inauguration, the, the coming of. And the initiation is that Jesus is going to come and he's going to come into the kingdom of God in a very public kind of a way by being baptized. He's going to follow and adhere to the Mosaic law of washings and baptisms. He's going to fulfill what John has portrayed as an allegiance to God, a baptism that ends all things. And in that way, he's showing, I am a part of the kingdom of God. I am the kingdom of God, so to speak. So this is the beginning of his ministry, the beginning of him publicly announcing his linkage to the kingdom of God. The genealogy then validates that he has the right to be this leader of the new kingdom of God because he goes all the way back to Adam, the first man. He goes back to Abraham, the beginning of the Jewish nation, and he goes back to David, the king of Israel. And so he has the right. So the baptism is his public inauguration, his announcement that I have come to the kingdom of God. I have come to lead it. The genealogy is his credentials, his validation. And then the temptation is where he proves that he's worthy. He didn't just get kingship over the kingdom of God because he just happened to be born to the father, but he's some pathetic inborn bred little child that doesn't know how to actually run anything. And he's corrupt and messed up and that kind of stuff. The temptation is going to prove that he is worthy of his credentials. And every single time it's going to mention the fact he's the son of God. God is going to say, this is my son. Jesus, the prophet, is approving him. God is approving him. This is the Son of God. That's how the genealogy leads to. And then the devil is going to say, since you are the Son of God. All these emphases are the Son of God is the one who is going to be the kingdom of God. The Son of God is in the genealogy of heirship. And the Son of God has proven himself worthy to actually lead and be God's kingdom king. And this is what this thing is pointing towards, this, the one who comes after, this section is doing. And so this is on the identity of who Jesus is. Chapter 3, verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, Jesus also was baptized. And while he was praying, the heavens, or the sky, opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on in him bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, or the sky, you are my dear son, in whom I take great delight. So John Luke's baptism of Jesus is very short compared to Matthew. Matthew spends more time on this. The phrase all people in the Gospels and the epistles all does not always mean all. It just is a idea of, you remember when, you, when the kids are like, but everybody's doing it. They're all there. Well, it's a hyperbole. It means that a good number of people are there. This isn't some like small fringe group in the middle of nowhere that you could drive by and completely miss it and 
All NPR covers it for a brief couple seconds. This is a huge gathering of the population of Israel who know of this and they're responding and they're being baptized and they're coming into the kingdom of God. And the, the movement has become so big and it's covered so many different areas of life, tax collectors and soldiers and, and, and everyday normal people and the Pharisees are there that this is big enough now that Jesus can walk onto the scene. He's not going to walk into some little dinky like movement over here that nobody knows about and then like be like i'm it i'm great and only if you know he's walking onto a national if this was on if this was in me- modern day media every news channel would be covering it constantly non-stop all the time and jesus walks in the scene and then, of course in john's gospel john says that's him and then he even not only points him out as the king but he even points him out as the high priest behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, whether John fully understood what that really meant or not, I don't know. And I don't have any problem with him not understanding it because Peter tells us that the prophets searched and investigated all the prophecies that they spoke, longing to understand the nature and the coming of Jesus Christ. Like, what did this all actually mean? And they didn't understand the vast majority of what they were even saying but they preached it because they knew one day we would and we would get it. And so that could apply to John too. I don't know. He says it and what he's basically declaring Jesus to be is king and high priest. And according to the law, you're not allowed to be both. But this is why the author of Hebrews goes in and says, yeah, but Jesus outside the law. And if you're there, you're like, what? Then go to my Hebrews thing and that's a whole other conversation in itself. Jesus comes and he gets baptized. It's very important that the reason Luke has very little on the baptism of Jesus is just saying he got baptized. Because Luke is not so much interested in the action of Jesus' baptism and some deeper significance to that, but he's more interested in the words of God. For Luke, he spends the majority of his time on what God is saying. And the significance of that. And that's the main focus. Not the actual act of the baptism. But the actual act that God is approving of this. Now this is very important. Because you have three things. Three figures right here. You have the last prophet of the Mosaic Covenant. And the last prophet of the Mosaic Covenant is pretty much universally, not everybody, but universally accepted that John is the prophet. The prophet basically comes and the baptism of Jesus is his anointing. In the, ancient, in the Old First Testament, the, the priests would pour out oil on the head of the king, on the head of a priest, on the head of a prophet to say that you now have the Spirit of God. Only priests, kings, and prophets got the Spirit of God coming down on top of them. And it was physically represented by the anointing of oil. And so the fact that the Spirit of God is coming down on Jesus means that he is being anointed by God. But not with external things like oil, but with the Holy Spirit himself. Three things are happening. The prophet of the Mosaic Covenant is anointing Jesus. He has brought him in and said, he is it. He is the one who is greater than I. He is the lamb. He is the king. He's saying all these things. And then by taking the water and dunking him, being anointed, the Mosaic Covenant with its authority, is saying, this is the Messiah. 
This is everything that I, the Mosaic Covenant, has been about. This is everything that I've pointed to. In the words of Paul, it was a tutor to point and prepare you for the one that was yet to come. This is the prophets. All the prophets are saying he is here. And the voice of John, who is the one who came in the spirit of Elijah. So all the law and all the Mosaic Covenant, all the prophets, all the voices of throughout all of human history are coming together in the body of John and saying, this is what we have all been about. He is here. The second thing that's being is the spirit of God is coming down. The spirit who guided, guided the prophets, guided Moses when he gave the law, who empowered the judges to do the will of God, who empowered the people who crafted and built the tabernacle. The spirit who has guided and empowered and governed the life of Israel is coming down anointing him and saying, I am the one that empowered Israel throughout all the ages, and now I am empowering him. He is the Messiah. I approve of him. I anoint him. And the third thing is happening is now Yahweh, who directs all these things, and he is the word that has been flowing towards this, and he is the one that prophesied his plan of redemption, is now saying, this is my son. Not my prophet, not my king, not my priest, my son. And then most importantly, and whom I am well pleased. Who has not said that about David. David was a man after God's own heart, but God was not always pleased with him. This is the threefold, the law, prophets, the spirit of God, the power that guides Israel and God himself, who's then approving of the son. This is everything that Israel has been hoping. Everything needs at least two witnesses to testify. And Jesus has three witnesses. This is anointing. This baptism is doing three major things. First, the baptism represents the endorsement of John's ministry and message. That this is the one that is yet to come. Second, and it links it to his cause. Second, it shows that Jesus identified himself with the people. By doing the very thing that the people are doing, he's not only being lifted up as the Messiah. Like, oh, I'm here. But then by getting into the dirty waters of the Jordan River and be doing what the people are called to be doing, he's also saying, I stand in your midst. I am one of you. And just like God was up there on the mountain and a glorious, you do not, cannot come into his presence kind of way, but at the same time then had them build the tabernacle in the dirt among the people and dwelt with them, Jesus doing the same thing. He's been declared as the one from the Most High, the Holy Spirit and God and the Messiah. But he also is getting in the dirt of the Jordan River and doing what the people do because he is one of them. And this is what John's gospel is saying. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And then later in verse 14 it says, In the Word tabernacled among us. Your Bible say dwell, but that's what tabernacle the dwelling of God. Hebrews says that he stayed in the midst of us and is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. The idea that he's with us and he's among us. And so the third thing that it does is it is saying the Spirit, Jesus emerges as the coming one whom John pointed. And the baptism signifies the end of John's ministry and the beginning of Jesus. The torch has been passed and we now enter into a new era. God spoke at the end of his baptism. Was that heard by people? I have no idea. There is nothing in the text that seems to point one way or the other. But most scholars believe that only John heard it. 
Either the gospel writers are all unanimously weirdly leaving out the response of the people when the heavens open up and they hear the voice of God, um, or they didn't hear it. And I think that's what most scholars point to. Like, certainly out of the four, shouldn't somebody be like, and the people were wowed and amazed. I mean, we get the response of the angelic visitations, yet nobody does. And that's what they point to. Now, notice it says the Spirit came down upon him like a dove. And there's a lot of people actually teach, like, the Holy Spirit was this dove coming down on him and resting his shoulder like the raven on Odin's shoulder or something like that. Like, but that's not what it says. It's a simile. The idea is it's coming down like a dove in that kind of a sense. Now we come to the genealogy of Jesus. Verse 23. So Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years old. Now that's significant. Now it doesn't say he was 30 exactly. So there are a lot of scholars that actually point to the fact that Jesus' ministry actually might have begun at age 33. So it's not saying that he's 30 exactly, but it's saying he's about 30. And what it means is he's at least 30. And why is this important? Because according to the law, nobody's allowed to lead other people outside their family unless they're 30 years old. Jesus can't even lead the people until he's at least 30 years old according to the law. Now you're like, well, wait a minute. Didn't you just say he's going to be a high priest and a king simultaneously and the law said he couldn't do that? Yeah, but he's not going to become that until he fulfills the law through his death and resurrection. He has to live righteously, meet the requirements of the law, then die and be resurrected. And then that's when the author of Hebrews says that when the death of the author happens, then the will is put into effect. And when the will is put into effect, you no longer need the will because now you're reaping the benefits of the will. The law no longer is necessary when Jesus dies because he's, the, he's enacted the will. However, through his resurrection, he brings the greater blessings of a new life. You can't really step outside the law, and, and that sounds wrong and I don't like that phrase, but until he actually dies and is resurrected, he fulfills everything that the law has to talk about. If he violates the law now, then he can't fulfill the law. And then he can't bring a new law, the Holy Spirit. So right now, until his death and resurrection, he has to obey the law because he's righteous. And this is the law of God. And the law is good. And the law is righteous. He is going to start his ministry at 30. And he was the son, supposedly, of Joseph the son of Helia, the son of Anna, and then it goes through all his names. Genealogies in the Bible always serve to determine someone's membership to the right family. And this shown is very clear, like genealogies are huge in Acts, or sorry, in Genesis, and then they become incredibly significant in Ezra and Nehemiah and Chronicles. Because when they're returning back to the land, those genealogies are very important because it's establishing who has the right to enter into the covenant relationship of God. Because once they were out of the land, then it's hard to figure out, like, who's a part of the covenant now? Well, in a way, nobody is because everybody's outside the land. But at the same time, the promises make sure that they're still in the covenant. When they come back to the land, you have the right to be in the land because you're a genealogy, a determined membership. And so Jesus' genealogy of Adam and Abraham and David is very insignificant because it's showing that he has the right to become a member of all these things. The repetition of son of 
is very rare in the biblical genealogies. And you don't really see this in the genealogies anywhere in the Bible. In very places. But the reason he's repeating the son of the son of the son of is to get you this, this cadence that will then eventually end it with in the son of God. And that's what all this is leading to is this repetition. And so it's leading to his credentials as Yahweh's son. The reference to Adam establishes his divine origins and of human. And so this is the idea. Matthew's genealogy seems to point to, seems to portray Jesus as the true Israelite in the line of David. That's Matthew's main focus. Matthew is about kingship, about Davidic Christhood. Luke, which is to stress Jesus' true human being. Now remember, we already talked about this. For Luke, Jesus is the perfect human. For Matthew, Jesus is the king. Even though kingship is here, what Luke is doing is he's emphasizing the fact that he comes all the way from Adam, the first human. And it's leading up to the fact that he is the son of God, which makes him a very significant human, which leads into the wilderness that he'll be able to do something that no human has ever been able to do before. And so this is the emphasis here. The genealogies are different between Matthew and Luke. And, oh, Mark has a genealogy too. He just basically says the son of God because Mark is short and sweet and to the point. And, and, and John has a genealogy too, and he basically says, and the word was God. Both have genealogies, but Mark is short because he's inspired by Peter who has ADHD and probably can't handle this list. And John's genealogy is he's emphasizing the divinity of Jesus. He's just two people. Many, so the genealogies of Matthew and Luke are the longest. And the, the, the thing is they cover different names. And you're like, well, shouldn't they be the same names if we're in the line of David? Some have argued that Matthew's genealogy is covering Joseph's line. And Luke's, line, Luke's genealogy is covering Mary's line from her father. Matthew is through Joseph's father to Jesus. And Luke is Mary's line through her father. That's probably not likely, though. Some people say, well, that can't work because a virgin birth prevents paternity. But that's not true. Um, because adoption um, is just as legitimate in pater paternity as biological birth. That's what most people argue. It's like, well, they have to be two different genealogies because they're completely different from each other. And, and what Luke is trying to emphasize is that Jesus still has a legitimate claim to the line of David because it came through Mary as well. Because Joseph wouldn't count since he's not really the biological father. But adoption is just as legal biologically in credentials as biological birth. So that doesn't fit. Most likely, the most natural explanation is that Matthew is providing the royal line. The, the, the firstborn sons through David. So David, then Solomon, then Abijah, like not all the sons of David. Because you think about any of the sons of David, any of those lines could be a legitimate line to David. So what Matthew's gospel is interested in is that very precise firstborn kingship line. Showing that Jesus is not just in the line of David, meaning that he has a claim to the throne, but that he is in the royal line of David, which means he is the throne. And so that's what Matthew is most likely emphasizing. Where So that would be through his father, where Luke is probably emphasizing the maternal line, but the maternal line through Joseph, not through Mary. 
And that this is showing that Jesus has it from both directions. No matter how you look at it, through Joseph's father or Joseph's mother, Joseph is solidly in the line of David. And therefore, Jesus without dispute in the line of David. And that's the emphasis here on that. Here's the other thing we must argue, too. A lot of people, especially The Last Temptation of Christ, a book that then was made later into a movie by Martin Scorsese, this made very publicly before all people a very common idea in scholarship that Jesus didn't really wasn't God or the prophet or a Messiah until his baptism, the Holy Spirit came upon him. And then he realized, Ding, oh my gosh, I'm it. And then he went out and he did his ministry and then then he died, and then that was pretty much it. The Last Temptation of Christ, the book, um, which then was made in the movie, actually went so far to suggest that the Spirit of God actually left him right before the crucifixion. And the Gnostic writings basically argue that too, that it's from baptism to crucifixion that he has the divine spark of God in him. But before that and after that, He's just a meat popsicle stick. He's just a human who is just misguided like everybody else. That's not what's going on. You have to understand, from the very beginning, Luke has been making it clear that the angel's visitation, that Jesus understands that he's in his father's house, that he's wowing all the people, that does not suggest confusion, that that he's doing things that other people cannot do, that, that it's very clear up to this point that Jesus knows who he is and what's happening. More of the idea that Luke is presenting is not this is the first time the Spirit has come upon him or into him, or that this is the beginning of like, oh my gosh, I'm amazing. But that this is emphasizing that Jesus is being led by the Spirit. And that this is the emphasis of the same Spirit that led him to be baptized and come on to them. The temptation is going to begin with, and he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness.